So here's the deal. Today we're going to talk about a key character trait for the Christian life. Absolutely foundational character trait for a successful marriage. A foundational character trait for business success, for your personal life. A foundational character trait for a meaningful experience in church, in the body of Christ. And most importantly, it's the foundational character trait for knowing God at all. But before we talk about it, before we name it, before we get into it in the scripture, I want us to all kind of take a step towards it together. So this is a 100% participation type of situation. Everybody, we're all going to do this together. So with Christmas coming up, did you know that you have an elf name? It's true. I saw it on Facebook this week, and, and we know that everything they put on Facebook is absolutely true. Uh, this is how you determine your elf name. Look up here on the screen. You, you take your first initial, and it corresponds to a first name of, of an elf, and then you take the birth month that you were born in, and it corresponds to a last name, and then you put the first name and the last name together, and that is your elf name. That's what Santa would call you. So find your first initial up there, and tell me, uh, you know, find, find your first initial, and find your first elf name, and find your second elf name, your last name, and then here's what you're going to do. You're going to turn to your spouse, your friend, somebody that brought you, the stranger down the row from you who you're really upset now that you sat by, and you're going to tell them your elf name. One, two, three, go. Tell somebody your elf name. Well, in case, in case you were wondering, um, I was born in March. Uh, my first name is Lucas, so L corresponds with Pixie, and March corresponds with the number three there. So my elf name is Pixie Sugar Gems. Uh, you are welcome to call me that through midnight on Christmas Day. Uh, for some of you, I would prefer Pastor Sugar Gems, but whatever, whatever you want. Uh, listen, that's a great setup for us today because we all just took a step toward humility together, didn't we? That was a little bit humbling, wasn't it, to have to tell somebody your elf name? And that's exactly what we're talking about today. We're talking about humility, this foundational character trait for the Christian life. So let's pray together and we're going to unpack the scripture together. God, teach us something in your word today. God, we know that your word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's faithful to pierce down and divide joints and marrow, soul and spirit. God, even as we'll see today, it will judge the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And so, God, we open our hearts to you. We open our eyes. We open our ears. We just open our minds a little bit, God. We take a kind of a deep breath and we say, God, speak to us through your word this morning. In Christ's name. Amen. Well, today I, I feel like it's critical for us to start with this simple question. Why would I need to or why would I want to learn about and or grow in humility? It doesn't seem to do us much good, right, in life. Like humility isn't necessarily celebrated. 
You know, it it doesn't always seem, when when we choose humility, it doesn't always seem to breed good things. But, But here's the thing. I believe that our reluctance to learn and grow in humility or our conclusion that humility doesn't really help, it doesn't really get us anywhere, it tells us that our definition of humility is misguided and incomplete. We, we've believed the definition of humility that the world around us has created rather than a biblical, God-focused definition. And here's what I want to start with this morning. If, if we can get our minds around a biblical, God-focused definition of humility, then that question, why humility, why learn about it, why grow in it, will become absolutely crystal clear. The answer to that question will become crystal clear if and when our definition of humility is biblical and accurate. So the best place to start today is with a definition of humility, and we're going to see this definition of humility kind of unfold in the life of Mary, mother of Jesus, in Luke chapter 1. We'll get there in a minute, our snapshot from the Gospel of Luke. So I searched and searched for definitions of humility uh, this week, all over the place. And to be honest with you, uh, defining humility is a little bit like nailing jello to a wall. I mean, it, it ain't that easy to define humility. It, it is a little bit of a slippery fish. And so I, I saw humility defined this way. I, uh, people defined it of thinking of yourself less. This is a decent definition of humility. Or people have said that it's thinking less of yourself. Those are two different things. I, I watch people, uh, you know, as I researched and I watch, I watch people uh, uh, mix up humility and humiliation. They got those things confused. Those are different things. We'll talk about that in a minute. I, I saw this definition of humility. I really like this one. Uh, that humility is the art of encouraging people to find out for themselves how wonderful you are. That's humility. I thought that that was a great definition. So look, after looking at countless definitions of humility, theologians, psychologists, sociologists, I want to kind of add my definition of humility to the mix a little bit. And this definition of humility comes out of the text that we're going to spend our time in this morning. We're going to spend our time taking a look at this snapshot of the angel's annunciation to Mary and her song of response called the Magnificat. So here's kind of the conclusion I came to this week in terms of humility. Here's my definition of humility. If you're taking notes, jot this down because here's where we're going to spend all our time today. Here's humility. Humility is an ever-increasing recognition of, focus on, and service to something greater than me. Humility is an ever-increasing recognition of, focus on, and service to something greater than me. Let's kind of take this uh, one step at a time, shall we? Humility is ever-increasing. You ever met a truly humble person that goes, you know what, I finally got it figured out. I've, I've kind of completed my humbling humility process. I've got this humility thing licked. On a 1 to 10, I'm an 11 on humility. That's not humility, is it? We know that for a fact. So humility is always growing. Humility is what? Ever increasing. Number two, there's no humility without a recognition that there is something at stake or something that exists that's greater than me. Humility begins with a recognition that there's something greater than me. 
And now that I've recognized there's something greater than me, my focus now, my eyes turn towards, my affection turns towards, my intellect turns towards, my focus, again, turn toward, turns toward this thing that I've recognized is greater than me. Now I'm focused on it. And finally, once I've recognized it and focused on it, I begin to serve that person or entity that is greater than me. And of course, the humble person always recognizes focuses on and serves something greater than themselves. If you would tell me, I, you know, I'm a humble person, I recognize, focus on, and serve myself. That's not humility. That's pretty easy, right? A humble person is someone who recognizes, focuses on, and serves something greater than themselves, himself or herself. Now, Let's watch how this definition of humility unfolds in the life of Mary, mother of Jesus. Specifically in her song of response that Amy read for us just a little while ago in worship. Her song of response when she finds out she's pregnant with the Son of God. So let's set up context here. If you remember last week we talked about a priest named Zechariah who failed to recognize, focus on, and serve something greater than himself. You remember and his wife, Elizabeth. And they had no children, and they were past the years of childbearing age. Yet they found out that they were going to have a kid. So now Zachariah's focus, his focus was so inward that he nearly missed out on God's promise. But Zachariah and Elizabeth conceive. And she's pregnant with a child just as God promised. And that's where we pick up our story of Mary. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Luke chapter 1. If you don't know this, we are studying the gospel of Luke here at Bayview Glen. We're calling it Snapshots. And our snapshot today is this angel annunciation to Mary. The picture that I want you to see is Mary's response her song of response, and and we're going to pick up our story in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. If you don't have your Bibles, that's all right. There's one in the seat back in front of you. You can use that one if you promise to put it back. If you don't have a Bible at home, feel free to take that one with you, to be honest with you. We'd rather you have a Bible than us have one, um, because we have some. It's a church, for crying out loud. And um, if you don't have your Bible, uh, look up here on the screen. The Scripture's up here on the screen. Let's pick it up in verse 26. Uh, Luke writes this, he says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled. It's an angel talking to her. Of course, she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Verse 30. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor. That word is grace. You have found favor or grace with God. Verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. And we call the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Okay, so let's get our head around, in terms of context, what exactly is happening here. So the first thing that Luke tells us, he says in verse 26 there, he says, In the sixth month. That's that's hard to say. In the sixth month. (laughs) In the sixth month of what? 
of Elizabeth's pregnancy. She's been pregnant now with what we will know to be John the Baptist. She's been pregnant for six months. months. And Elizabeth is a relative of Mary's. Uh, The the scripture says cousin or kinswoman. We don't know if they were first cousins, but we do know that they were relatives. So the second thing that Luke tells us is that Mary lived in a city of Galilee named Nazareth. So Luke names the city, but he also names, names the region that the city is in. So let me ask you a question. Anytime you name a city and then you name the region that it's in, why would you do that? Well, if I told you that I was vacationing in Paris, would you be impressed? What if I told you it was Paris, Texas? There is a Paris, Texas, by the way. It's a little bitty nowheresville town that nobody lives in and nobody wants to vacation in. Somebody after the first service told me there's a Paris, Ontario, too. Isn't there a Paris, Ontario? Would you want a vacation there? No, of course not. You wouldn't want a vacation in Nazareth of Galilee either. If you're from Paris, Ontario, I apologize. We're very sorry about, you know... Compare your city to Nazareth. You'll be fine. So this is why Luke tells us that Nazareth is in Galilee. It would have been a very obscure and unknown city even to his readers. In other words, we're already seeing Mary's humble beginnings unfold, aren't we? Finally, uh, Luke tells us twice in verse 26 and 27 that Mary is a virgin. Mary's a virgin. And in verse 34, Mary asks the $100 question. I'm pregnant? I'm a virgin? Like, look, Gabriel, I don't know if you understand the biology here, but how can this be, is what Mary asks. And tells us, the scripture tells us, for a third time that Mary is a virgin. Now, I want to give you a theology lesson real quick. It's not even what we're talking about, but, but it's important because Luke repeats it three times. Uh, you're in church. That's what we do. We do theology. We talk about God. Okay, Luke finds it important enough to highlight three different times that Mary is a virgin and she becomes pregnant. In verse 35, look up here on the screen. This is what the angel explains. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. This is how you're going to become pregnant, that the Holy Spirit would come upon you. Now, there are some really goofy folks out there that claim to be experts that have argued that the Holy Spirit took the form of a man and had sex with Mary, and that's how she got pregnant. Sorry. Yeah. Based on the language in the text... This is not an intellectually honest interpretive option. It just simply is not there. Here's what Luke is telling us. He's telling us that God miraculously intervened in Mary's womb and caused her to conceive. Now, why is this important? The angel gives us two reasons. First, look what the angel says. He says, the child born to you will be called, say it with me, holy. The child to be born to you will be called holy. The Bible teaches, listen, that you and I are sinners at our core. We're not just sinners in what we do. We're sinners in who we are. And the Bible calls it a sin nature. Theologians call it a sin nature. It's who we are. And that sin nature is inherited from our very first parents. And it's been passed down and it's corrupted every member of the human race except for one. The one who was conceived miraculously by the very will of God did not inherit a sin nature. He was holy, different, pure, 
set apart. He was without sin, not just in word and deed, but at his very core was without sin. Why does that make any difference at all? When he went to the cross, listen, he had no debt of his own to pay. You see it? That's why it's critical. The second thing that Jesus, or the second thing the scripture tells us is that Jesus, this child that Mary has conceived and, and has become pregnant with, is going to, is bearing in her womb now, will be called the Son of God. He'll be called the Son of God. Jesus was the God-man from the womb to the cross. He was never anything other than 100% God and 100% man. Thus... In being holy, he has no debt of sin for his, of his own to pay. And in being God, the Son of God, he lives eternally to intercede for you and me, not just once, but always. In other words, being God and being holy, because he was born of a virgin, Jesus has plenty of spiritual currency. And being without sin, he has no debt of his own to pay. Don't let some wacko so-called theologian tell you that it doesn't matter. It matters. That's your theology lesson for today. It'll cost you a quarter on the way out. Okay, so the angel continues his message to Mary, right? Verse 36, pick it up with me. The angel says, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. We'll come back there. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So listen. Let's just talk about Mary's situation. The Bible tells us that Mary is betrothed to Joseph. She's likely between the ages of 12 and 14. She's a virgin. She's got a bun in the oven, and an angel has told her all of this. Now, she's in a little bit of a pickle, don't you think? A very difficult, very stressful, even very unbelievable situation. What if you told someone, I know I'm pregnant, but I'm a virgin, an angel told me? Well, what if that was you? What would you do? Where would you go? Where would you turn? Where would you run? Well, Mary turns the same place that a lot of us would turn, to a relative, someone close to her. That is, and I quote from the book of Luke, righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. She goes to Elizabeth's house. And Mary takes a, takes a journey from Nazareth in the north, 80 to 100 miles south, by herself, at preteen age, pregnant to the hill country of Judea and discloses to Elizabeth all that's happened. Look, I know I'm betrothed to Joseph. We've never had sex, but I'm pregnant. And an angel told me that I'm pregnant with the Son of God. Now, Elizabeth is ecstatic. You know why? Because she knows the baby in Mary's womb is the Son of God. Elizabeth's baby in her womb at six, month, six months old, the scripture tells us that the baby literally leaps in her womb when Mary shows up on the scene. Now, before we, before we talk about Mary's song and the humility that, that we see in Mary's song, I want to show you something that I just think is really funny. 
Elizabeth responds to Mary when she tells Elizabeth everything that's happened. And remember, this is month six of her pregnancy. When did God silence Zechariah? Preconception. When did Zechariah get his voice back? On the eighth day when John the Baptist was circumcised and named. So Zechariah is still what? Silent. And why is he silent? Because he didn't believe God. He didn't put his trust in God. God sent an angel, Gabriel, to announce the birth of John the Baptist to Zechariah. And Zechariah goes, well, how should I know this? Prove it to me. Prove it. Send me a sign. Focusing on himself. He didn't believe God. So look at verse 45. Look at Elizabeth's last, the last line of Elizabeth's response to Mary. Look what she says. She says this. uh, And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now, if you know anything about men and women and marriages, Zechariah has been silent now for six months plus. Probably best six months of Elizabeth's life, to be honest with you. And he, and he is silent because he did not believe that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to him from the Lord. So I can see Zechariah, like this is not in the scripture. My Bible's over here. I'm over here, okay? This is not in the scripture. But in my mind's eye, I see Zechariah over in the corner playing charades. Like, you know, baby, angel, and trying to, you know, sounds like first word, two syllables, the whole thing, right? And I can see Elizabeth, in my mind's eye, look at Mary and give Zechariah the old eye roll. Blessed is she who believed there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Zechariah. <laughs> Not in the scripture, but I just think it's funny. All right. And the minute that Elizabeth says that, Mary bursts into song. And, and all that we've talked about so far is just context. It's just context. Here's where we're going to camp out this morning and listen to the humility. Listen to the humility in Mary's song. Pick it up in verse 46. It says, and Mary said, that word is also sang, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked upon the, say it with me, humble, the state of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts and brought them down, brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of, say it, humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. Now, now here's the thing. We do not have time to unpack this whole song of response. Not just today, but all the time. There's just too much here. The character of God. uh, It's what it says about us. What it says about God's promises. It's just so rich. So so here's what we're going to camp out on this morning. This example of humility that we see in Mary. And her humility is surpassed in the pages of Scripture by only one other person. And that's the baby that she's carrying in her womb. 
So let's use Mary and let's add some muscle to our definition. Let's talk about this definition of humility, that, to, that it is an ever-increasing recognition of, focus on, and service to something greater than me. Uh, here's the first thing. I want you to see from Mary's statement why I don't believe that humility is simply thinking less of yourself. I don't, believe, I don't believe that's really at the core of what humility is. And, and I want you to see it from the Scripture so you're not like, oh, man, Luke, what are you talking about? Let's look at it from the Scripture. Look back at Mary's statement. She says this, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. And look, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. All generations will call me blessed blessed she even says that the mighty one has done great things for who me now listen let me ask you something does that sound like mary thinks of herself as a slug that no one needs or wants someone that god will never use it certainly doesn't to me here's what it sounds like to me that mary recognizes god's blessing you see that recognition there recognizes God's blessing, recognizes the ways in which God has uniquely designed her and chosen her to accomplish his great purpose. In other words, humility, true humility, isn't thinking poorly of oneself. That's, that's an oversimplified and, and not a very biblically defensible definition. Let's use, this, let's use this application from real life, right? Let's use this example from real life. Let's say a man passes out on a plane. This happened to my dad, actually. He was, he was having a reaction to malaria pills, which I think is funny now. I didn't think it was funny then. My dad passes out on this plane. Uh, he's early 60s. We totally thought he was having a heart attack. My mom stood up screaming on the plane. Is there a doctor on the plane? Is there a doctor on the plane? It just so happens that there was a woman who had been an ER nurse for 35 years, and a man on the plane who had been a cardiac surgeon for 32 years. And they both stand up and go, I've been a cardiac surgeon for 32 years. I've been an ER nurse for 35 years. And they run over to help my dad. He wasn't having a heart attack. Again, reaction to malaria pills because we were going to Africa. My, da my dad doesn't just make it a habit of taking malaria pills. So we were going to Africa. And so they run over to help my dad. So listen, when my mom stood up and said, is there a doctor on the plane? Can somebody help? I think my husband's having a heart attack. If the 35-year-old or 35-year veteran of the ER and a 32-year cardiac surgeon stood on the plane or kept in their seat and kept silent and thought to themselves, you know, I'm just too humble. I'm just, I just, you know, I can't really help. I'm just, you know, but what would we, what would we say of them? We wouldn't say they were humble. We would say they were criminally negligent, right? See, see, this is what Mary recognizes about herself. That God has blessed me. God has chosen me. God is using me. So listen, I can stand tall knowing that I've been blessed of God. But it's important to notice that Mary isn't boasting in herself, is she? She isn't boasting in her own accomplishments. She isn't boasting in who she is. Mary balances standing tall with a right understanding of the glory and majesty of God. Look back at it again. She says, my soul magnifies who? The Lord. And my spirit rejoices in what? God, my Savior. Here's, here's what we learn from Mary's song, friends, about humility. 
Humility actually stands tall, not small, because it recognizes the great blessing and provision of God. Here's how we're going to say it today. If you're jotting down notes, jot this down. True humility stands tall in the shadow of overwhelming greatness. True humility stands tall in the shadow of overwhelming greatness. An old school author named Phillips Brooks, I love the way he says it. He says it this way. Look up here on the screen. He says, the true way to be humble is not to stoop until you're smaller than yourself, but to stand at your real height against some higher nature. That will show you what the real smallness of your greatness is. This is lesson number one from Mary. True humility stands tall in the shadow of overwhelming greatness. Now, this should radically transform our understanding of humility. Because listen, listen close. Some would tell you that humility is focusing on your own brokenness. Mary teaches us that humility is more about how great God is. And that moves us to action, that moves us to service, it moves us to empowerment, it moves us to freedom in Christ. If you think you are humble and it's not moving you to live empowered and blessed, then it's not humility, it's shame. There's a, then there's a difference. Whereas we thought humility might weaken us, humility actually brings strength. Whereas some think that humility is humiliation, now we recognize that humility actually stands tall, but it does so in the shadow of overwhelming greatness. And that's the critical piece. That the truly humble, like Mary, stand before God and say, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. His greatness is too overwhelming for me to take, and I know that he has blessed me, that he has chosen me. The scripture says that he has given you everything you need for life and godliness. The scripture says that he has set you enthroned in the heavenlies with him, the scripture says that he has chosen you. You can stand tall in the shadow of overwhelming greatness. Now again, there's a lot we can learn about humility here. So much about ourselves, so much about the character of God. But let's pick up one more verse. I just want to highlight one more verse and take two lessons from it. We'll talk about some practical life applications. Verse 52. Look at verse 52. Look what Mary says about God. She says that God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Two lessons in humility here from Mary's statement about who God is. One difficult and one really encouraging. Here's the first one. Mary says that God has brought down the mighty from their thrones. In the previous verse, she says that God has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Men and women of God, do you know how long God has been in this business of bringing down rulers from their thrones, of scattering the proud in the thoughts and imaginations of their hearts, of deposing kings who refuse to stand in the shadow of his overwhelming greatness? Do you know how long he's been doing this? A very, 
very long time. I just jotted down a few. Those who built Babel as a memorial to their own accomplishment, God scattered the proud. He brought down Pharaoh, who refused to stand in the shadow of God's overwhelming greatness. He brought down Haman. He brought down Nebuchadnezzar. He brought down the Ammonites. He brought down Ananias and Sapphira. He brought down Nero. He brought down Hitler. He brought down individuals, cities, businesses, and kingdoms that stood tall in their own greatness, not in the shadow of God's overwhelming greatness. And look, if you know anything about history, God didn't just bring them down from their thrones, did he? He brought them down in the thoughts and attitudes of their hearts. Even some of those folks that we mentioned, Nebuchadnezzar, Hitler, Nero, others, they went insane, literally, because of their own pride. He dismantled their imaginations. Picture that. Their pride. Eating them alive from the inside and God just dismantling their imaginations because they refused to recognize something greater than themselves. Friends, if you and I think that anything or anyone that exists today and boasts in self-accomplishment or ability will continue to stand, think again. Individuals, systems, governments, cities, businesses, you name it. Paul will say it this way in Philippians, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every knee, just make sure we know. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's what Mary tells us. Uh, We either choose humility or God will work it out for us, won't he? We either choose it or God is going to work it out for us. He brings the mighty down from their thrones. He scatters the proud, even in their imaginations. The second lesson here from verse 52 is beyond encouraging. Mary says that God has what? Exalted those of humble estate. Now that's pretty cool. That God exalts the humble. He lifts up those who stand in the shadow of his overwhelming greatness. You want to know why? Here's why. God loves to show off his great power by using the humble to accomplish his great purposes. God loves that. Because he gets all the attention. He gets all the glory. God loves to show off his great power by using the humble to accomplish his great purposes. And how much can he really accomplish through those who are humble before him? Listen close. How much can God really accomplish when we stand in the shadow of his overwhelming greatness, recognizing we are blessed by him, chosen by him. It's all about him. And we stand in the shadow of his overwhelming greatness. We recognize, focus on, and serve a God who's greater than ourselves. How much can God really accomplish? Look at verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. He took this little 12, 13, 14-year-old girl from Nowheresville to bring his son Jesus into the world. Can you believe that? Nothing is impossible with God. Listen, friends, that impossible marriage crisis, that impossible relationship at work, that impossible living situation, that impossible sin that you can't seem to overcome, that impossible hurt that won't heal, 
that impossible fear you can't shake, God loves using the humble to claim victory over the impossible because he gets all the glory in the process. If you're taking notes, jot this down. God uses the humble to do the impossible. He did it in the life of Mary, and he can do it in yours when we stand in the shadow of his overwhelming greatness. Now, I know there's people in the room today, and I want to speak to those in the, in, the, in the place that maybe have felt knocked around by life a little bit. Maybe you've felt marginalized. Maybe you've felt forgotten about. Maybe you feel there are times when you're not listened to. Maybe you feel like your opinion wasn't valued. Maybe you felt like your gifts weren't welcome. Maybe it felt like your personality didn't fit. Maybe you felt like life was too overwhelming to take at times. I've been there. Maybe you felt pushed aside, knocked around, or even abused. And the situation feels impossible. And next time that little voice whispers into your ear and tells you this situation is impossible, remember that God used a little preteen girl from a forgotten about village in the middle of nowhere to accomplish the impossible. And if you're humble before him, he can do the same for you. Let's let that sink in. That God used a preteen girl from a forgotten about village in the middle of nowhere to accomplish the impossible. He exalted those of humble estate and he can do the same for you. He can use you when we're humble to do what we think is impossible because he declares nothing is impossible with me. we got a couple minutes remaining and I just want to comment on four areas of life. Four areas of life when we humble ourselves before God, when we stand in the shadow of his overwhelming greatness and we stand tall knowing that he's blessed us and chosen us, when we recognize, focus on, and serve something greater than ourselves, I want you to see four areas of life that would radically change if and when we're humble. First, your marriage. Your marriage. I read an article this week in uh, the Association of Psychological Science Journal. This is the kind of stuff I do with my week. I read articles in the Association for Psychological Science Journal. And this article was talking about the negative aspects of psychology and the positive aspects of psychology. Essentially, it was like, you know what? Sometimes psychology tries to treat what's wrong. This article was going, what if we tried to promote what's good? What if we tried to help people develop uh, healthy lifestyles? And, and, and when and where can we do that? And they started specifically talking about marriage. And this author of this journal, so this is the scientific journal, author of the journal saying, in all my research and all the stuff I've done and all my years of experience and a professor at this or that university and all the accolades and all the letters after their name, all the degrees, this person said this, if you want a healthy marriage, get humble. This person literally said, uh, humility is the primary characteristic of healthy marriages. And I'm going, this was, this was published 2,000 years ago. We've kind of known this one for a while. Like, give me something new. Listen, when we begin to recognize, focus on, and serve the marriage rather than ourselves, what if I saw the marriage as something greater than me? Because it's God's design 
I stand in awe of the greatness of God as it's displayed in marriage and pour my energy into my marriage rather than pouring my energy into figuring out how my marriage might serve me. Doesn't that seem like life might change? Doesn't that seem like marriage might change for those of you guys who are struggling in your marriage or even those who have a healthy marriage, you want to get it healthier? If we, if we changed our mindset and we said, you know what? I stand in the awe of greatness of God and I'm serving this marriage because it's bigger than me. What about in business? For those of you who are uh, in, in, the, in the marketplace, corporate life, you might think to yourself, Luke, you're about to tell me that humility is going to help me uh, develop and grow in my business life and career. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Humility is critical when it comes to growing in your business and career as well. And don't take my word for it. How many of you have read the book uh, Good to Great by Jim Collins? Anybody read that book? It's, it's an absolutely foundational book. New York Times bestseller. Millions of copies sold. Here's what Jim Collins did. He did five years, countless hours of research. And here's the question that he, he, he asked. Uh, what makes good companies great? What are the common things that these companies that went from good to great, hence the title of the book, Good to Great, what are, the, what are the things that they have in common? And Jim Collins, after five years of research and countless hours and all these experts working with him, he said there are seven things that these companies have in common that went from good to great. But the one thing that was the most important for all of these companies was a level five leader. He says there's five levels of leadership. One, two, three, four, five. Five being the highest level of leader. And listen to what Jim Collins says. He said, you want a company goes from good to great get a level five leader in there. That is the critical piece. Here's how he defines a level five leader. Look up here on the screen. Level five leaders are differentiated from other levels of leaders in that they have a wonderful blend of personal humility combined with extraordinary professional will. They realize that the most important step they must make to be a level five leader, listen, something greater than themselves, is to subjugate their ego to the company's performance. And again, I'm going, it's been around 2,000 years. We kind of knew this stuff. And we struggle to apply it because we think it won't work, because we think it's not practical. The Bible has great things to say, things that actually work. When, when you and I are humble, uh, men and women who are in business, when we're humble, when we subjugate our ego to something bigger than us and ultimately subjugate our ego to God and live in the shadow of his overwhelming greatness, we'll, we'll see things change. Number three, your spiritual life. Some of you feel like, you know what, my spiritual life has never really got off the ground. Uh, my spiritual life, you know, it was off the ground for a while. Now it's kind of plateaued and it's starting to taper off. I'm kind of in a rut spiritually. Humble yourself. Because your spiritual life really will take off when, listen, you recognize, focus on, and serve a God that's far greater than you. One of our former senior pastors here, a guy named A.W. Tozer, was our senior pastor when we were down at Avenue Road. He wrote this. Look up here on the screen. He said, for the Christian, humility is absolutely indispensable. Without it, there can be no self-knowledge, no repentance, no faith, and no salvation. 
if you're struggling in your spiritual life, if you've dried up a little bit spiritually, reading the Bible is absolutely great, and, and learning to pray is great. I would encourage you to go to those, uh, those training sessions, even that Kevin talked about. But, but you know what happens when you read the Bible? You get humble. When you let it read you, you get even more humble. When you stand in the shadow of a God who is overwhelmingly great and pray to him, you get humble. And as my former senior pastor would say, your spiritual life will go to black, from black and white to technicolor like that. When we stand in the shadow of a God who's overwhelmingly great. Finally, and, and this, with this we'll close, your church experience will change. Your church experience will change. Listen, uh, men and women of God, I, I, I get people that come into uh, my office or come talk to our staff all the time, and they say, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling at church. I'm, str- I'm struggling with, with body life. I'm, I'm struggling. It's, you know, and, and, and sometimes, not all the time, but, but even I would say a lot of times, a lot of times what's on their mind is how can the church serve me? And that's okay. That's okay. We're here to serve you. We're, we're, here, to, we're here to help you grow. We're here to plug you in. We're here to help you get to know God better. But here's one thing that, that, I, that I would just encourage you. When we see that the body of Christ is greater than us, that all of us together, the mission God has called the church to, that's bigger than me. That's greater than me. I'm going to recognize that, focus on that, serve that, stand in awe of God's greatness. My church experience radically changes. All of a sudden, the way I participate here is different. All of a sudden, uh, my spiritual life returns. All of a sudden, body life, feel, I feel much more engaged. See God do great things when I say, you know what? You know what? Maybe it's not about me. Remember talking about that last week? Maybe it's not about me. Maybe my job is to stand tall in the shadow of God's overwhelming greatness. Maybe my job is to recognize, focus on, and serve a God who's greater than me in every area of my life. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let's take a cue from Mary. Let's strive to stand tall in the shadow of God's overwhelming greatness. Let us recognize, focus on, and serve a God who is far greater than ourselves. And in the midst of it, we're going to watch him do the impossible. Amen? Amen. As we conclude this morning, we're going to receive an offering for the Global Advance Fund. Again, Kevin talked about this earlier. It goes to support over 200 international workers. Uh, We're going to add two more in June when Kevin and Grace transition and they head out to the Middle East. So if I could invite uh, Melissa and and the gospel choir back up to lead us, I'd also invite our ushers forward to receive uh, the offering towards the Global Advance Fund. As we do that, let's pray together. God, may we be humble givers. May we realize, God, that and recognize that as we give, we're giving to something greater than ourselves. We're giving to something bigger. And as we do that, would you turn our focus and turn our attention towards your overwhelming greatness? Jesus, you said that uh, we will see even greater things than the things that you did even when you were on this earth. And and God, I really believe that that's life transformation, that's life change. So God, as we give, 
remind us that the greater things uh, that we'll see in life transformation are the greater things that we're giving to even now. God, take these humble gifts and do the impossible with them. In Christ's name, amen.